Hi, this is Shiva P. Raman from Johns Hopkins University. So over the course of this lecture, I'm going to talk a little bit about the CT imaging of diffuse liver disease. We're going to begin with a very brief discussion of CT technique, protocol optimization, and a little bit about the role of 3D post-processing. But I'm going to cover two broad categories of liver disease here, parenchymal disorders and vascular disorders. Now, as you all know, at Johns Hopkins, we believe strongly in the utility of dual-phase technique when it comes to hepatic imaging. So anyone with suspected hepatic pathology is going to get a dual-phase study. They're going to get an arterial phase at roughly 30 to 45 seconds after the injection of IV contrast, and then a venous phase at roughly 60 to 70 seconds. Now let me point out that we don't routinely acquire either non-contrast or delayed images as part of our standard protocol. But that being said, I think each of these two phases does have some utility in certain very specific instances, and we'll talk about that during the course of this lecture. Now, I know that Dr. Fisherman has talked to you a great deal during the course of his many lectures on CT as Us about 3D post-processing. So you've all had a chance to learn about maximum intensity projection imaging, or MIPS, vascular mapping techniques, volume rendering, and the ease with which you can get MPRs directly off the scanner. Now, that being said, I'm going to show you a number of images during the course of this lecture where the 3D post-processing really makes a difference in the liver. Not only can it help you identify lesions that may not be really readily obvious to you on the source axial images, but it can also illustrate subtleties of a mass or disease process that may help you narrow your differential diagnosis, or in some cases, even make a specific one. So as I mentioned before, we're going to cover two broad categories of diffuse liver disease. We'll start by talking about a number of relatively common parenchymal liver diseases, things that I think we all confront on a daily basis. And then we'll move on to talk about a number of more rare vascular liver diseases, things that you're not likely to see more than just a few times each year, but nevertheless are critical diagnoses to make as a misdiagnosis can have a tremendous impact on patient morbidity and mortality. So let's talk about parenchymal liver disease first, and by far the most common disease in this category is going to be hepatic steatosis. Now there are a number of different causes for steatosis, including alcohol, drugs, obesity, pregnancy, diabetes, and even certain medications. But by far the most potent risk factor to this day is still going to be alcohol use. Now even though alcohol is the most potent risk factor, it's actually non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that's becoming an epidemic in our country. And that's largely as a result of exploding levels of both obesity and diabetes, which are the primary risk factors. It's now thought that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease will affect up to 25% of adults in this country. Now that being said, the majority of patients who have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease are not going to develop chronic liver disease, they're not going to develop cirrhosis, they're not going to have elevated transaminitis, and they're going to be completely asymptomatic. The problem is that a small percentage, maybe up to 25% of these patients, are ultimately going to develop a steatohepatitis or inflammatory subtype, which you're all probably familiar with as NASH. Now NASH is a big deal. These patients can have an elevated transaminase level, they can develop chronic liver disease, they can develop cirrhosis, and it's thought that over the next decade, NASH will become the leading cause of liver transplantation in this country. Now, unfortunately, from our perspective as radiologists, we can't readily distinguish patients who have or do not have this inflammatory subtype. It's all just going to look like a steatotic liver. And that's why it's so important for us as radiologists to make the diagnosis of steatosis on CT. In the vast majority of cases, by pointing out that it's there, patients can alter their risk factors, lose some weight, have their diabetes treated, and for the most part, are not going to go on to develop end-stage liver disease. Now, one specific form of steatosis that I think is incredibly common but underappreciated and underdiagnosed is chemotherapy-related steatohepatitis, also known as CASH. Incredibly common. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a patient who's being treated for one malignancy or another 
gets a few rounds of chemotherapy, and goes from a completely normal-looking liver to a really, really steatotic-looking liver. This can be caused by a number of different drugs, and I think all too often we tend to just ignore it as radiologists. We concentrate so much on the patient's underlying malignancy, and we don't think that steatosis is important. But let me tell you, it is a critical diagnosis to make. It can impact future treatment options, and in many cases, by pointing it out on a CT scan, the patient may be taken off of the most hepatotoxic drugs and put, off, put onto a number of other drugs that are relatively more liver-friendly. Now, making the diagnosis of steatosis is by far best done on a non-contrast CT. Now, there are a number of different definitions that people use and that you can read about in the literature, but the one that I use in my practice is that the normal liver should be about 10 Hounsfield units greater than the spleen in density on a non-contrast study. Anything less than that, and I feel relatively comfortable saying that the patient does in fact have steatosis. Now, making the diagnosis of steatosis on a contrast-enhanced study is always a little bit more difficult. First of all, never make the diagnosis of steatosis on the arterial phase. There's just way too much variability in terms of the enhancement of both the liver and the spleen, and I've seen too many cases where the liver looks steatotic on the arterial phase, but ends up being normal in density on both the non-contrast and the venous phase images. For me to feel comfortable about making the diagnosis of steatosis on a contrast-enhanced study, I want a really good contrast-enhanced venous phase, and I want to see a liver that's at least 25 Hounsfield units lower than the spleen on that phase. At that point, I think you can be comfortable in saying that the patient does in fact have steatosis. Now, making the diagnosis of steatosis when it's diffuse isn't that difficult. You're just measuring Hounsfield attenuation values. But I think the problem comes when you're dealing with patchy, focal, or geographic areas of steatosis that can mimic pathology. I've seen steatosis mimic tumors, metastases, infarcts, and other areas of actual pathology. But there are a few clues that can help you make this distinction. First of all, focal fat, or focal fatty sparing for that matter, tends to occur in relatively classic locations, adjacent to the falciform ligament, abutting the gallbladder fossa, involving the central liver, the medial undersurface of the left hepatic lobe, and running along the course of blood vessels and fissures. Secondly, focal fat or focal fatty sparing should never have any appreciable mass effect, and vessels should course through these areas completely undisturbed. You shouldn't see any vessel attenuation, narrowing, or deviation. So here's a classic example of diffuse fatty infiltration. The liver is significantly lower in density than the spleen on a non-contrast study, so you can feel comfortable in saying the patient does in fact have steatosis. Now, as I mentioned before, focal fat tends to occur in classic locations. Here are three examples. Focal fat adjacent to the falciform ligament, abutting the gallbladder fossa on the central liver, and involving the caudate lobe. These are probably the most common locations, and if I see focal low density in these areas, I can feel pretty comfortable saying the patient does in fact have focal fat rather than some pathology. Now, focal fat can often run along the course of blood vessels in a perivascular distribution. Here's an example where there's a geographic area of low density running along the course of that right portal vein. But notice how blood vessels course through that area undisturbed without deviation or narrowing, and just paying attention to it a little carefully, you can say that this is likely to represent fatty infiltration. Now, I don't want to make this sound like it's too easy. There are going to be plenty of examples where it's not going to be quite so obvious, and you may need to get a confirmatory test, namely an MRI with in and out of phase imaging. Now, in this case, notice how the patient is cirrhotic, has end-stage liver disease, and would certainly be at high risk for developing HCC. Now, there are large geographic areas of low density in both the right and left hepatic lobes, and I think that if you pay attention carefully, you'd probably say that those are likely to represent geographic areas of fatty infiltration. 
But if I was reading this case right now, I would feel really nervous about these small, splotchy areas of lower nodular density scattered throughout the remainder of the liver. Now, could those represent fat? Certainly. But I'd be worried that that could be HCC, underlying malignancy, metastatic disease, you name it. In this case, whoever read the case felt just as concerned as I did, and they ended up doing an MRI with in and out of phase imaging, proving that all of this was just fatty infiltration. Now, as confusing as fatty infiltration can be, I've actually found focal fatty sparing could be just as confusing, if not more so. Here's an example where the liver is diffusely low in density, so there's extensive fatty infiltration. But there are these larger, mass-like areas of higher density. They have convex margins, and for all the world, they look like actual masses. Now, I'd feel really nervous saying that this is just focal fatty sparing. I'd be worried. Could that be METS? Could that be HCC? Could those be adenomas? You name it. Now, in this case, the patient had no risk factors, no underlying history of malignancy or chronic liver disease, and we proved that these were all just areas of focal fatty sparing on an MRI. But that being said, here's another example that looks almost identical. A low-density, fatty liver with multiple mass-like areas of higher density. Now, based on the previous example, could this again be focal fatty sparing? Well, yeah. But that being said, this patient had an underlying history of a malignancy, and these turned out to be metastatic lesions. You've got to be really careful, don't be overconfident, and if you're unsure, there's nothing at all wrong with getting an MRI with in and out of phase imaging. Now, 99% of the time when you have a low-density liver, it means that you've got steatosis. But I think it's important to remember that there are other entities that can mimic the appearance of steatosis on CT. Now, by far the most important of these is acute hepatitis. Now, you all know that in the vast, vast majority of cases, acute hepatitis is going to present as a completely normal CT scan. You're not going to see any density differences. You're not going to see anything. It's really, at that point, going to be a biochemical or laboratory diagnosis. But in rare instances, when you have severe hepatocellular edema and necrosis, you can end up with a low-density liver that can mimic steatosis. In most of the cases that I've seen, there have been other ancillary findings, things like perihepatic ascites or gallbladder wall edema, and particularly in those cases, you need to at least think about this diagnosis and look at the patient's laboratory work. I've seen a few cases of fulminant hepatic failure, often patients who have had suicide attempts, acetaminophen overdoses, alcohol poisonings, again, present with a low-density liver. And in rare, rare instances, I've seen cases of diffuse infiltrating malignancies, especially lymphoma, or even disseminated infections in patients who are immunocompromised. So here's an example of a big, boggy, low-density liver that certainly the first thing you'd think about would be steatosis. But in this case, the patient's transaminase levels were in the thousands, and the patient turned out to have acute viral hepatitis. You can't make this distinction without knowing a little bit about the patient's history and laboratory work. Now, here's another example, a sad case of a patient who had fulminant hepatic failure as a result of mushroom poisoning. Notice again, the liver is low in density compared to the spleen, and your first thought would have to be steatosis unless you know a little bit about the patient's history and underlying laboratory work. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in rare, rare instances, diffuse infiltrating malignancies can mimic the appearance of steatosis. Now, I'd say there are a number of different malignancies that can do this, but by far the most common is actually lymphoma. Now, this was an example where the patient had extensive lymphadenopathy elsewhere, had big spleen, you know, had known lymphoma. And we ended up reading the liver as being likely steatosis. But they called me to do a biopsy, and I biopsied this liver in several different locations, and every biopsy came back as lymphoma. Anytime you see a really low-density liver in the setting of diffuse lymphoma, you have to at least think about the possibility of lymphomatous infiltration. 
Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about one specific form of steatosis that often is a source of confusion, and that's radiation-induced steatosis or radiation-induced steatohepatitis. Now, this is increasingly becoming an issue because we're treat- radiation oncologists are often treating central abdominal malignancies with radiation, and the liver is often going to be within the radiation port. Now, I'd say most often, the involved portion of the liver tends to be in the left hepatic lobe, largely because that's the portion of the liver that gets included within the radiation port. Now, radiation-induced steatohepatitis in the acute setting is often associated with bizarre patterns of enhancement. You can see areas of hypervascularity that really are very non-mass-like in the arterial phase. But over time, as those involved portions of the liver heal, you're just going to get an area of geographic low density that tends to conform to the left hepatic lobe. So here's an example. Notice how this patient has been radiated for an unresectable pancreatic cancer, so the left hepatic lobe was included within the radiation field. The entire left hepatic lobe is shrunken, it's atrophic, it's low in density, and steatotic. Classic example, classic distribution of radiation-induced steatosis. Now, let's move on to another relatively common source of parenchymal liver disease on CT, and that's cirrhosis. Now, as all of you know, cirrhosis represents chronic liver damage that ultimately leads to hepatic fibrosis and nodular regeneration. Now, by far the most common causes in this country are going to be viral hepatitis and alcohol disease. But that being said, there are a number of other causes as well, things that are relatively rare, things like PBC, metabolic cirrhosis, or even primary sclerosis and cholangitis. Now, It's important to remember that cirrhosis is fundamentally a pathologic diagnosis. In other words, it's not at all uncommon for a patient to have a mild case of cirrhosis as defined based on a biopsy and pathologic analysis, but to have a completely normal-looking CT scan. But I'd say in the vast majority of cases, by the time you start to get moderate or even severe cirrhosis, you're almost definitely going to have some findings on CT. Now, the most specific sign, and I think the most important sign of cirrhosis on CT, is going to be nodularity of the surface capsule. If you see a liver capsule that's nodular, undulating, irregular in appearance, you have to consider the possibility that the patient has cirrhosis. There are a number of other findings you're going to see as the patient develops increasing architectural distortion and change. Often the caudate lobe is going to get relatively larger. You're going to see hypertrophy of the left hepatic lobe, atrophy of portions of the right hepatic lobe, you'll see widening of the fissures, widening of the periportal space, enlargement of the gallbladder fossa, and as a result of that fibrosis and traction within the liver, you're often going to see the formation of cysts, so-called peribiliary cysts, running along the course of the portal veins. So here's a great example of a patient with undeniable cirrhosis. Notice how the liver is diffusely nodular and irregular in terms of its surface capsule, which in and of itself allows you to make the diagnosis of cirrhosis. But notice the other ancillary findings. The caudate lobe is just getting a little bit big, the periportal space is widening, the fissures are widening, all of which confirm your diagnosis of underlying cirrhosis. Now, I think one relatively underappreciated finding in cirrhosis and portal hypertension are peribiliary cysts. Now, these cysts, which often run along the course of the portal veins, are often confused with biliary dilatation. But notice, unlike biliary dilatation, these small cystic foci are on both sides of the portal vein, something you'd never see with dilated bile ducts. If you see these small peribiliary cysts, even if the patient doesn't have other stigmata of cirrhosis, you have to consider the possibility that the patient has underlying chronic liver disease, cirrhosis, and portal hypertension. Now, regardless of the cause of a patient's cirrhosis, in general, most cases of cirrhosis are going to have pretty similar appearing morphology. But there are two specific causes of cirrhosis that can give you relatively unique-looking livers. The first of these is primary sclerosis and cholangitis, and the second is primary biliary cirrhosis. 
Now, PSC, over time, as you all know, tends to involve both the peripheral and the central biliary tree. You're going to see dilated bile ducts, often with areas of narrowing and then dilatation. Over time, the periphery of the liver is going to gradually shrink and atrophy, whereas the center of the liver, the caudate lobe, can get massively enlarged. And this is often termed pseudotumoral enlargement of the caudate lobe. Now, this is relatively specific for PSC, although you will rarely see this in patients who have chronic Bud Chiari syndrome or even chronic central portal vein thrombosis. Now, primary biliary cirrhosis, on the other hand, is associated with the development of innumerable small regenerative nodules in the liver. And in between these regenerative nodules, you're going to get this extensive fibrosis or lace-like fibrosis with prominent bands of high-density fibrosis interdigitating amongst these regenerative nodules. Now, this isn't 100% specific, but I think when you see this lace-like pattern, you can at least think about the possibility of the patient having underlying PBC. So here's a great example of chronic PSC. Notice how those peripheral ducts are dilated with areas of beating, narrowing, and dilatation. And notice how big that caudate lobe is. The caudate in this case is probably bigger than the right hepatic lobe. It's huge. This is a classic pseudotumoral enlargement of the caudate lobe. And based on this constellation of findings, I would feel entirely comfortable raising the possibility of PSC, even if the patient didn't have a known underlying diagnosis. Now, that's more of a chronic setting. If you see patients with PSC in more of an acute or subacute setting, you're often going to see dilated ducts associated with bile duct wall thickening and enhancement. Notice how in this case, the patient does have some degree of cirrhosis. The caudate is getting big, and you're starting to see some nodularity of the liver capsule. But notice how that right hepatic duct is dilated, it's thickened, and it's abnormally enhancing, suggesting that this patient does in fact have some degree of active bile duct inflammation. Here's another example. In this case, it's the extrahepatic bile duct that's involved, and notice again how it's thickened and abnormally enhancing. And what I haven't shown you is that the cystic duct was involved as well, resulting in gallbladder obstruction, or gallbladder outlet obstruction with gallbladder hydrops. Classic example of PSC. Now, PBC tends to not be quite as overt in terms of its findings, but it's very common to see this lace-like pattern of interdigitating fibrosis associated with innumerable regenerative nodules. Notice in, this, in these two cases, you can see these small, tiny, hypodense or hypointense nodules on the CT and MRI respectively with these high-density bands of fibrosis running along the course of the nodules. When I see this, I always think in the back of my mind, could this patient in fact have primary biliary cirrhosis? Now, patients with cirrhosis over time, as they get increasing hepatic fibrosis and worsening vascular resistance, are going to end up developing portal hypertension blood is going to seek to bypass the liver through the formation of portosystemic collaterals because you end up having so much end-organ vascular resistance because of that cirrhosis and fibrosis. Now, portal hypertension tends to have a number of different manifestations, but the one that we're all most familiar with is the development of portosystemic collaterals or collateral vessels. Now, the earliest and I think the most specific sign of portal hypertension is the development of a recanalized paraumbilical vein. But there are a number of other collaterals that you can develop as well. Intraesophageal, parasophageal varices, perigastric, perisplenic varices, intragastric varices, uh, periumbilical collaterals, or even a splenorenal shunt. Over time, you're often going to see other stigmata of cirrhosis and portal hypertension as well. Ascites, mesenteric edema and stranding, thickening of the gallbladder wall. In rare cases, thickening of the small and the large bowel, often termed as portal colopathy. And as I mentioned before, you can often develop peribiliary cysts running along the course of the portal veins. So here's that same patient we looked at earlier with cirrhosis. And notice how there are multiple manifestations of portal hypertension here. There's a recanalized paraumbilical vein, which is almost always going to be the first sign of portal hypertension, the first portosystemic collateral. 
Notice in addition, there's diffuse mesenteric edema, there's ascites, there's fat stranding, all of which go along with the patient's known underlying portal hypertension. Here's another example. Notice that in association with the patient's recanalized paraumbilical vein, there are innumerable collaterals in the anterior abdominal wall, so-called periumbilical varices. Now, these tend to be readily visible to clinicians on physical examination, which is why this is often termed as a caput medusa. Here's another example of a patient with multiple portosystemic collaterals, and in this case, you can really see the most common collaterals, periesophageal, perigastric, perisplenic varices. In my experience, these are almost always going to be the first portosystemic collaterals that you see in patients with cirrhosis and portal hypertension. Now, while 99% of the time when you have these morphologic features, you're dealing with a patient who has cirrhosis, that's not always going to be the case. There are going to be cases in which a patient can look for all the world like they have cirrhosis, but you could really be dealing with another entity. And the one entity I think you need to be somewhat cognizant of is pseudocirrhosis as a result of treated metastatic disease to the liver. Now, particularly with scarous metastases, as they get treated, you get fibrous retraction, you're going to get scarring, and you're going to get this undulation of the surface capsule because you get retraction and scarring from the treated metastatic disease. And for all the world, this can look just like cirrhosis. And in many cases, you're not going to really be able to make a distinction just based on imaging alone. You have to look at older studies, and you have to look at the patient's history. But if you start to see multiple calcifications within the liver at these sites, that can often be a clue that you're not dealing with just run-of-the-mill cirrhosis, but you may be dealing with dystrophic calcifications as a result of treated METs, and hence, you may be dealing with pseudocirrhosis from treated cancer. You can theoretically get pseudocirrhosis from a number of different malignancies, but I'd say in my experience, the vast majority of cases have resulted from treated breast cancer metastases. So why don't we stop there and take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue with our survey of diffuse liver diseases. 